know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to interview Caden Paulson-Smith, a Ph.D. candidate in the political science department and a law and society graduate fellow at the Institute for Legal Studies here at UW-Madison. Caden will be teaching a new seminar course this fall called Global Policing. We'll ask them about their research in this work as well as other projects that inform their research and teaching. We'll also ask them about their plans for the class, especially in the context of broader issues of global policing. Thank you so much for being with us today, Caden. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Since this is your first time on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your academic path so far, what brought you to UW-Madison to pursue a PhD program, how you just got involved and interested in politics. Absolutely. As a kid, my first political memories were of the beginning of the so-called war on terror in the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan in the early 2000s. And I had parents who were very involved with the anti-war movement. So I went to a ton of protests and became kind of that kid in elementary school who wanted to start political debates and simulate elections in class. I also had incredibly supportive parents who gave my sibling and I every opportunity they could to travel. And so from a young age, I participated in international youth programs and summer camps. And these experiences were all really formative to me developing a political and international consciousness. And I'm so privileged to have had these opportunities from such a young age. And they've really stuck with me and kind of driven me to where I am today. In high school, I was super involved with environmental activism and local government in the Twin Cities. And I went to this incredible high school, the School of Environmental Studies, where I had the opportunity to attend the UN Climate Change Conference in Copenhagen through like a high school delegation. This was one of the first times this particular UN conference was open to civil society. At that point, I became really interested in international negotiations and global solutions to climate change. And this drove me to focus on environmental science and policy as an undergraduate at Smith College. And at that point I had rosy eyed glasses and high hopes for the UN and what it could achieve through fostering global collaboration. Um, But I pretty quickly got disillusioned with how multilateral politics actually work. And I got picked on by a lot of my political science friends who are extremely critical of relying on these kinds of solutions. And I've since reluctantly come to accept their point of view. Um, And so in college, I also got the opportunity to learn Swahili in my first year and then study Swahili language and culture intensively in Tanzania my first summer. My initial interest in Africa stemmed from an understanding of how climate change disproportionately affected the global South. But also my interest in Africa stemmed from pretty limited and problematic knowledge that I had gained about this part of the world Um, growing up with movements like Invisible Children and Saved Darfur. And if any of you have taken Africa 277, you'll know that we use these as two prime examples of the perils of white saviorism. I 
was fortunate to have had brilliant teachers who challenged me as an undergrad and invited me to challenge my own assumptions about the continent. And they modeled me how to think critically and more reflexively about concepts that I had taken for granted, like humanitarianism and like development. And so at this point as an undergrad, I pretty quickly made the switch to a government major and became more and more interested in African studies. Once I graduated from Smith, I worked at an international relations research lab at the College of William and Mary for a couple of years. And I got a better feel for what it might be like to become an academic. I took classes for fun while I was there and I wanted to learn more about how to make learning a permanent part of my life. And at the time I didn't know just how permanent it would become. But at that point I became really interested in Uganda's famous Anti-Homosexuality Act which was debated in parliament in 2009. Okay, so if you know anything about this, you know that the US Christian right played a huge role in holding conferences and lobbying Ugandan MPs and really writing the text of this now infamous legislation. If you're interested in this, I encourage you to look up Ugandan feminist and lawyer, Sylvia Tamale or Reverend Dr. Kapiokoma's work um, who've written more extensively about this. But this, when this was happening, I really wanted to know more about this type of neo-colonial influence that I hadn't considered before. And I was curious if this was taking place in other parts of Africa as well, like Tanzania, which I was more familiar with at the time. And I also wanted to work with scholars who I had studied as an undergrad, who were experts on human rights activism across the continent, like Dr. Eileen Tripp, who's now my advisor, um, and who I collaborate with on different projects related to, to understanding how human rights get progress and momentum in authoritarian contexts. And so this all brings me to a couple of years ago, as a graduate student, I took a feminist theory seminar with Dr. Annie Menzel in Gender Women's Studies. And what we learned and discussed in that course totally rocked my world. I started making connections between the movements and issues that I had been studying in East Africa, still Tanzania specifically, with the experience of people in my own communities in the US. And so I had been going through human rights reports on LGBTQ people's experiences in African contexts. And I realized when marginalized people were experiencing violence, it was often at the hands of the state and specifically through the police and prison system. And this sounded familiar to people's experiences in my own communities in the US. And so at this point, I started shifting my whole dissertation from focusing so narrowly on LGBTQ rights in East Africa to focusing more broadly on the history and impacts of policing. And so one thread through all of this kind of somewhat random non-intuitive history is that I am motivated to better understanding how systems of power work and what my place in those systems of power is. And I've learned a lot from feminist theory about how to locate myself in my work. As a white American settler currently occupying Ho-Chunk land and as the grandchild and great-grandchild of white police officers who actually worked in Jim Crow, Georgia, I'm committed to understanding how my ancestors and I are accountable for upholding white supremacy. And I've really learned that it takes an interdisciplinary and international approach to be able to connect the dots between histories of enslavement and colonization and genocide and mass incarceration um, to the present. Also, as a queer and trans educator, I see myself as part of a larger global struggle to question and challenge the privileging of whiteness and heterosexuality and masculinity and cisgenderism. And so these interlocking forms of privilege, I think become especially clear when we take a closer look at the carceral state. 
all very big and really, really important stuff. And we, of course, want to take the time we have with you on this podcast to really start to dig into them, getting nitty gritty. So let's start with your research and teaching interests. As you mentioned, you know, this fall at the UW, we're super excited because you're going to be teaching um, uh, global politics of policing in the political science department. And as uh, you were discussing, this is probably definitely, I mean, related and probably maybe like an outgrowth of your dissertation research. So for now, just to kind of start getting into these topics, could you give us an overview of some of the main questions and maybe help us understand concepts like colonization and decolonization and how they speak to questions of state, police, and identity? Absolutely. So my work is driven by questions like, what are the roots of institutions of state violence, like the police? And what lineages of resistance can movements build on today? How do we not reinvent the wheel, in other words? And how do we envision a decolonial and abolitionist future? So those are some of the, the big overarching questions that I am trying to kind of move along and contribute to and bring into the classroom. And luckily, scholars and activists like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Michelle Alexander, Angela Y. Davis, and many others have already laid this groundwork over the past several decades for us to go about answering these questions about the prison industrial complex in the case of the US. But one thing I found is political science as a field has mostly overlooked and under historicized policing. And so the discipline's been very slow and reluctant to begin looking at the broader police and prison system with a critical, historically informed, global and comparative lens. And nobody in our field has addressed the colonial roots of policing institutions and how the history of colonialism might still impact what policing institutions do and look like today. And I think that without understanding these transnational and imperial origins, we can't really understand the side of policing that's essential to understanding state violence in our own communities today. And we can't understand state violence around the world without understanding these imperial origins of one of the main institutions of this violence, the police. And so my dissertation looks at the police as a colonial leftover. And I trace the development of the British colonial police in East Africa from its origins under the British empire to the present. I draw from previously classified UK archival data and I construct three case studies of policing in former Tanganyika, or what is now known as Tanzania in East Africa. And ultimately what I find is that policing methods and challenges in Tanzania today are not unique to the present, but they're actually persistent legacies of the colonial state. While colonial rule formally ended in Tanganyika in 1961, the police and prison system itself still largely remain intact. And my theory for why this is, is because policing institutions created the modern capitalist state. The police co-constituted the state and they extended colonial technologies, ideas and practices into the afterlife of empire. And that's why these legacies continue to shape state control today. Um, and this is part of, this is central to our understanding of 
racialized, sexualized, gendered, and classed state violence today. And I have a, a second major project that looks more broadly at global policing and abolition. And this is really the framework for the course. And so in this course, I'm interested in comparing the politics in different contexts and also looking at the relationship between those contexts. So I'm going, I'm happy to talk about that more after this, but really generally this other research agenda looks at how the police and identity structure systems of power globally. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we're on the subject of your dissertation still, I want to ask, what are the consequences of these police systems still being in place? Because you talk about how there's this really strong through line between ancient colonial practices of policing enforcement and how they inform police departments today. But what are the consequences that these type of systems still exist in these countries? Yeah, that's a great question. And I love the fact that you use the word through lines because one, that's one of my other favorite podcasts in addition to yours, of course. Um, and also one of the ways that um, I think about my own research, tracing these through lines and these continuities between his, historical institutions over time. And so one of the consequences um, that's really the, probably the easiest one to point to is the material means of policing. And so Stuart Schrader has done the work of tracing tear gas as a colonial invention that was meant to suppress challenges to colonialism. And tear gas is often used by settler colonial states like the United States and also like post-colonial states like Tanzania. And so we can look at these material means and practices of policing peaceful protests, for example, to see one tangible outcome of colonial influence. We can also look at criminalization. And so a lot of the laws that the British Empire introduced are still in place today. One of the most popular ones comes from the Indian Penal Code, Section 377, which is um, pretty well known among people who study international LGBTQ rights because this was the law that criminalized what is codified as same-sex acts. And so this criminalized queerness globally, all across the British Empire for the first time. And so we can see colonial legacies through these laws and especially in former British colonies today. There's so much to unpack. There's so much to talk about, uh, but let's dive right into your class on global policing. Can you tell us about the objectives that you are looking to accomplish in the class with the students and some of the main topics that uh, you guys are going to be discussing? I would love to. Um, this course takes a global approach to the politics of the police and policing. We begin with key concepts and theories of the relationship between policing and power. We then examine specific contexts of policing over time. And so from roughly the 19th century to the present, we look at a sampling of different places spanning Nigeria, Mexico, France, Canada, South Africa, the Navajo Nation, Palestine, Tanzania, South Korea, the United States, and a few other case studies. And the course ends with an examination of social movement strategies toward democracy and toward abolition. And so my goal is that students will leave the course with foundational knowledge and tools to address really big questions around the politics of policing today. Like what is policing? How and why did the police emerge in the first place? What does policing look like in different places around the world? 
and what is the future of the police and policing? And so the course is organized into four parts around those main questions. Um, and I'm most excited about teaching the final part of the course on the future of the police and policing. Um, and in this, we, at this point in the course, we've talked about how um, movement strategies are responding not only to a current crisis, but a historically rooted crisis. So we have decades to draw from. Um, and there's a lot happening locally to mobilize and move us all forward in addressing some of these questions about the future of policing. For example, Freedom Inc., a Madison org that fights for gender justice and queer justice and Black and Southeast Asian liberation, has teach-ins and panels and meetings about defunding the police and ending the school to prison pipeline here in Madison. And so I'm really looking forward to bringing some of those types of organizing into the classroom and to engage students with that. I'm also excited to connect students with conversations happening nationally through networks like Critical Resistance and through nonprofit publishers like Haymarket Books. And any family or friends that I have will laugh if I say that because I'm constantly spamming them with videos and recordings of Haymarket Book Talks almost every week. So I strongly encourage anyone to check out their YouTube page for all recorded panel discussions and conversations, especially hosted over the past year. You know, a lot of people are asking, or maybe one of the questions that you are looking to answer in your course is a question that is on a lot of people's minds, especially today, is uh, what comes after policing? A lot of people respond with, well, what does, you know, like, what happens then? What does that look like? Are those also kinds of questions that you are looking to answer and look, you know, provide a framework to maybe come up with an answer? Absolutely. Yeah. These, like you said, these are conversations that are happening right now and evolving. And like I've kind of alluded to, there's already a lot of great work and momentum toward answering them. And so when we think about the NSARS movement, for example, happening in Nigeria, you may have seen headlines about these nationwide protests in Nigeria starting last October um, against police brutality and specifically against a particular police unit, the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, SARS. Um, and so over the past 30 years, this unit has come under fire for torture, extortion, um, unlawful arrests, killings, and sexual violence. The government promised to end or reform SARS about four times since 2017. And so this has already been an ongoing conversation for years. And it was actually successfully disbanded after the protests in October 2020. And by disbanded, I mean that it was renamed. And so it was replaced with a new unit called the Special Weapons and Tactics Squad, SWAT. And it still operates using the same forms of militarized policing. And so when we're thinking about questions like abolition and what comes next, there are examples we can draw from not only in the US context, but around the world. And so we have a lot to learn from what's happening in Nigeria right now and what activists are calling for and the strategies they're using to get those demands met. Um, and so this is a really important case to understand because not only is the police system, like I said, a leftover from British colonial rule, but it recently came to light with these protests that the UK government had continued to fund and train and equip the SARS unit over the years, even after the end of formal colonial rule. And so as researchers and teachers, we're all trying to, I think, better globalize our thinking um, because movements are already doing this. And around October 2020, the Movement for Black Lives issued a statement of solidarity with the NSARS protest, signaling that 
This legacy of police violence stretches beyond U.S. borders and beyond the present. And many activists and scholars of policing and imprisonment in the U.S., like I said, have traced mass incarceration and anti-Black policing and criminalization to its origins in chattel slavery in this country. So I think when we're examining questions like reform, we have to think about how these histories of making changes to policing systems over time are actually how they have continued to persist over time. In my own research, I look at Tanzania, like I said, current, currently known as Tanzania, and the types of reforms that I find that were introduced during British colonial rule um, were things like more tear gas shipments to the police, more riot training for police officers, more surveillance and monitoring of Black Africans, and especially workers. And so reform in this context was meant to help the colonial police do their job better, which really brings us to the question of what was their job? And I find that the colonial police, their main purpose, their only purpose was to maintain control and establish a hierarchical social order that put Black Africans at the bottom in order to allow for the extraction of labor and raw materials from the colonies. And so if we remember that the definition of reform is to improve an institution based on what that institution is meant to do, it's no surprise that police reforms under colonialism would improve police officers' ability to suppress dissent to colonialism and reinforce white colonial rule. And this is why the entire colonial police system was created and why I think it's so important for us to focus on the histories of these institutions so we can better understand what calls for reform are missing and even more kind of insidiously, what alternatives might they lead to that will just strengthen the current system as it exists instead of replacing it, instead of coming up with something new and better, um, instead of something um, that we have seen before. And so there are a lot of a lot of different things um, that we could talk about from this point on, but it is really just such an exciting set of questions to be exploring, especially with with students who are oftentimes on the, the front lines of these movements right now. And so I'm really looking forward to teaching this course and being able to do that in the fall. Speaking of which, obviously, we've cracked open the can of worms on current events in policing. I think it in itself would be a crime if we didn't ask you and talk to you about the current context of policing and the debates surrounding it in the United States, because we're recording this on April 15, 2021, and just this morning, the defense in the case of Derek Chauvin, who is the white police officer accused of murdering George Floyd, uh, a Black man who was killed in Minneapolis last summer, they rested their defense just this morning. Earlier this week, another young Black man, Dante Wright, was shot and killed in a traffic stop outside of the Twin Cities, again, by an officer who thought she was reaching for a taser instead of a gun, at least she says. We obviously have to talk to you about this and ask for your expertise on these uh, on these issues. And the first thing that I want to ask is kind of an extension of some of the things that you brought up before. And that when we say we reform a police department, the idea is that we are making the police department better at what it was designed to do. So the question I want to ask is, what do you think police in the United States are designed to do? 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, first of all, I am not an expert on policing in the United States, but luckily there are many experts on this. One thing I recommend is Miriam Kaba's New York Times article from June 2020 called, Yes, We Mean Literally Abolish the Police. And she says in this article that there's not a single time in US history when the police were not a force of violence against black people. And she points out research that's been done to show the origins of policing in the South having emerged from slave patrols in the 1700s and 1800s. And their purpose was to catch and return fugitive slaves. And in the North, the first police departments in the North in the mid 1800s were designed to quash labor strikes and riots. And everywhere, Marion Kaba points out, the police have been used to suppress marginalized populations and to protect the status quo. And so we have a very clear idea of the origins of the police in the United States. And we can trace, to go back to this idea of through lines, um, the through lines that connect these original purposes to the present. Um, and there are a lot of scholars like Angela Davis, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Michelle Alexander, who have done this kind of process tracing. And for a, an amazing primer, I encourage you to check out 13th, if you haven't seen it, Ava DuVernay's incredible documentary that traces the prison system and the prison industrial complex more broadly to institutions of slavery. And so in this sense, these institutions of policing and of imprisonment haven't gone away since slavery. Instead, um, they've been reformed over time so that they can continue existing and continue serving the interests of those who set them up in the first place. This is why we have historians like Robin D.G. Kelly and others. And this is why scholars of the carceral state in the U.S. call for this kind of global approach to understanding the politics of policing, to understanding the politics of policing in our own communities, in our own lives. Scholars like Julia Chinere Opara and M. Jackie Alexander have used transnational feminist frameworks to do this and to think more critically about criminalization and imprisonment in relation to things like capitalism and colonization and recolonization. And so this is why in, in this course, I'm trying to globalize our thinking about the police and policing to better understand how they work and to identify these shared institutions within this broader system that seeks to uphold white supremacy all over the world to better understand alternatives and what it might take to not just change these institutions, um, but to eliminate them and try to imagine something better, something new. What is that next thing then? What would the something new look like? Because I think that one of the biggest arguments against, say, some people even make this argument against police reform, but especially against police abolition, is the argument that we need some kind of police. If, you know, who are you going to call if something bad is happening to you? So my question is, what then is that new thing? Or do we even fully know? And, and might it be okay that we might not fully know? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's very telling that the biggest objection to abolishing the police is that we can't imagine a world without it. And so this is a point abolitionists like Miriam Kaba make all the time. Um, so the first step for us, I think, is challenging the assumptions we have about the police and prison system. And I've had to do this for myself with looking at the police as a colonial invention, 
So this leads us to realizations like the police haven't always existed in the form we know them in today. The police were invented at some point. They had a starting point and the prison systems as well all over the world. Um, and if we're able to begin having conversations about other forms of justice and reconciliation, um, indigenous forms of transformation in communities, we might become less sure about this claim that there is nothing else or that the prison and police system is universal or somehow pre-existing all over the world. And another important point abolitionists mention is that it's not when they're making calls for defunding the police, for example, it's not just about eliminating institutions or tearing down what we know, but it's about building up, building up communities, investing in communities, creating something new. Um, and many think of abolition as a study and a practice and not simply as an outcome. And so in a way, a lot of us are already engaging with the study and practice. Um, we're already doing the work of abolitionism. Other scholars, like there are several Nigerian feminists like Damala Aluka, who have been at the forefront of the NSARS movement, who have said that by ending units like SARS, we are bringing countries closer to decolonization. And so we can also think about abolition as a form of anti-colonialism and decolonization. The British Empire is one of the largest empires in history. And so it spread not only structures of empire, but ideas and practices and strategies of violent state control that inform these state practices today. And so when we're thinking about what else might we do to think differently about relationships and communities and punishment, we already have a lot of examples out there. And this is, I think, again, why it's so important to address these questions on a global scale and to not think about the US as existing in a vacuum or being an exception. This is all just a, a quick snapshot of some of the ideas that are circulating out there, but there are, are plenty of, of ways we might look at practices that we're already engaging in that we might not identify as being um, of kind of the abolitionist tradition or of the black radical tradition, if we identify the roots of that, but that have their, their um, foundations in those kinds of ideas and those kinds of struggles. Yeah, with these huge ideas and these really big concepts I'm sure that a class like this is going to you know be really interesting with a lot of different viewpoints coming in from the university how are you going to introduce and you know on the first day of class how what are some of the strategies that you're going to implore uh, to introduce these really big concepts that you know require a lot of outside thinking yeah it is a huge topic it is a huge undertaking and I think that's what's exciting about it. There's so much to learn, both for me as an educator, from students, for us to learn as a class together by interrogating some of these assumptions that we might have. I think that my approach to answering these questions and to covering all this material is to try to identify the assumptions that we have. And so we've talked some about that already, but I think oftentimes questions like, what happens next? Or what might the future of policing be? Or why does this keep happening? Or what about the protests we went to last summer? What and the new political leaders we got elected? And so my approach to answering these kinds of questions is try to think about assumptions about time and place. And so there's something that often is behind these. There's some like assumption about time that these kinds of 
killings of Black people at the hands of the police are somehow new or unique to the present. And the second set of assumptions is around policing and resistance as being something that's only happening in the U.S. And so there are elements that are new and unique to the present and to the U.S., but none of what's happening today takes place in a vacuum, like I've said. And so I think we can learn more about the U.S. by challenging ourselves to not view it as detached from the rest of the world or frozen in the present moment. What I do in my teaching is to try to historicize our thinking about the police and about policing. And so in this course, we cover first how the police and policing emerged. We go through the creation of the modern police, the imperial diffusion of the police, slavery in the prison industrial complex, and historians like Dr. Elizabeth Hinton and Donna Murch, who actually just gave a Zoom lecture at the Havens Wright Center here at UW yesterday, remind us of this history of policing in the US. And Dr. Murch pointed out that one thing that is unique to the present is this broad base of mobilization and protests against police violence. So she does research on the Black Panthers in the 1960s and 70s and finds that a lot of this organizing didn't have a broad base of mobilization. However, the carceral institutions and forms of state violence that the movements are challenging are not unique or new to the present at all. When we start to examine these histories and the work that a lot of mostly Black scholars are doing on these big questions, we can destabilize our own assumptions about the police and prison system. One of the things I try to do in the course is cover these histories as well, like I said, take a global approach, and then also to work towards skills like self-reflexivity, critical thinking, to challenge some of the ideas that we take for granted about how our world is built and how justice is or is not achieved. This is a lot of material, but at the end of the day, the most important thing that I hope students take away from the course is a set of skills so that they can engage in these conversations and start these conversations maybe with people who haven't yet been exposed to some of these other ways of thinking, haven't started to think about their own position and complicity in some of these systems. No, super, super fascinating stuff. And you mentioned that a part of the course deals with how social movements in the past and across the globe have dealt with the police or worked to affect change regarding the police. I want to ask, how or what techniques do you feel like are the most successful in motivating or changes or abolition in police departments and kind of in that framework, how would you, I guess, evaluate or maybe give a report card to the tactics of some recent groups in the United States, like say um, Black Lives Matter, or as you mentioned earlier, Freedom Inc. here in, in Madison, affiliated with those groups who have been trying to employ strategies to achieve those means as well. I think that the work those organizations do has led to us having these conversations, um, especially as white people. And so I am indebted to the work those organizations have been doing and oftentimes Black-led organizations. And so I don't feel that I am at all in a place to judge the work of that because I have benefited so tremendously from it and we all have. Um, I also think that drawing from historians, like I mentioned, Dr. Murch, um, we can look at the ways movements like Black Lives Matter have mobilized more people um, 
kind of an unprecedented level than movements have been able to before around these complex and thorny and deeply rooted symptoms of white supremacy. Um, and so I would say that the work these organizations doing has been absolutely fundamental to any successes or wins that we've had. So for example, in Madison last summer, um, after years, I think since I started grad school, Freedom Inc. has been working to remove resource officers from public high schools. And last summer, they finally had a win. And they successfully were able to remove police from public high schools. And so we can look at these kinds of reforms to these like long lasting problems and to see a lot of these movements having major wins as they have been building momentum up over, over years and over decades. And so I think it is really crucial to, to look to these organizations as our guides and to follow these organizations to think about, especially as white people, what our role in this is, because we definitely shouldn't be out there leading these movements because we are not the ones who really understand what is happening from such intense points of privilege in our white supremacist society. And so I think that it's really important to do the learning that we need to do to challenge our assumptions and to think more critically about our positions, like I mentioned, in being complicit. And that's why a lot of abolitionists think about abolition not as an outcome and not even as a set of policies or reforms, but as a practice and as a study um, or as praxis. Absolutely. In the interest of time, I want to make sure that we hit a couple questions at the end, namely, how has the pandemic affected the research that you've been doing in this? Um, I guess maybe a more appropriate question might be, how has the last year affected your research and, you know, both being at home and with the resurgence of this movement? Well, I was lucky because I completed a large amount of archival research the summer before the pandemic began. And so I scanned about 2,000 pages of documents in the British Colonial Archives. Um, and I planned to do more in-person research in the UK this past summer, um, but I was able to work with the materials that I already had and draw from digitized sources as well. And so I've also tried to think creatively about how to find other sources of information. I've, I know this is impossible for everyone's research and questions, but I found treasure troves of digitized photos and video footage um, like propaganda footage from websites connected to national archives and museums that I hadn't even thought to check before. Um, I've also come across material in surprising places like Facebook, where formal colonial officers or their families are posting various images or discussing memories of their time in the colonial police forces. And in another project I have with Dr. Eileen Tripp, we've been remotely connecting interviews in a handful of African countries over Zoom. And so this has allowed us to keep in touch with people who shape our research and to connect with more people maybe than we would have been able to in person. And so, of course, this isn't the nature of everyone's research methods and data. And I know a lot of other of students and my colleagues are really struggling to find alternate ways to do their work. And it can be difficult to come across kind of new and unexpected sources that might like breathe a different kind of life into work. And so it is it has been a time, I think, for all of us. And then as we're starting to near the end of our interview, we want to make sure that we ask you 
what we should have asked you today. Like, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you feel like we really, really need to, or anything that you feel like our listeners need to hear? I don't think so. It's been a very thorough examination of some of the main questions that I've been looking at and that I'm excited to bring into the classroom with you all in the fall. So yeah, I can't think of anything else. I am definitely jealous that I am not going to be able to take this class because I would love to. Um, yeah, me too. Not yeah. fair. <laughs> Thank you. But, Happy to send you the syllabus. <laughs> um, the last thing that we like to ask our guests, especially this last year, the weather's getting nice again. Things are changing in America. What has been making you hopeful lately? I appreciate that question. I'm hopeful for the new connections that have been sparked and divides that have been bridged, if I dare say that, by so many conversations happening online or digitally during the pandemic. And so I've been able to bring these incredible abolitionists who I've talked about now into my living room on my computer and see them in dialogue with each other and with leaders in my own communities. And so there has been a surge in Zoom broadcasts, broadcasts and podcasts covering these giant questions um, about how to imagine a better future. And it turns out there are a bunch of ways to do that. And so I'm hopeful that we will continue talking to each other and challenging each other and holding each other accountable to keep growing. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.